Welcome, I'm Romy Neme, and this is The Third Person, a podcast where we take a step back and explore what could be, if only the way that things currently are didn't have such a hold over our imaginations. In this episode, you'll hear Nick Fortuno and I talk about what play makes possible that we don't otherwise have access to, how he uses physical psychology, or what he calls body hacks in his games, the importance of loose tie networks to our collective health, and different examples of how to activate our playfulness out in the urban wilderness. So Nick, hello. Hi. Do you want to tell us who you are and how you describe yourself? Sure. Uh, My name is Nick Fortuno. I'm a game designer and interactive narrative designer, and I specialize in what I call innovative game design, which means making interactive experiences about non-game things for people who don't play games. Mm, That's awesome. So it's for people like me who have never done a cartwheel or played many games in my life before. Yeah, you know, because games and interactive experiences give people a different way of... Uh, finding aesthetics effectively by exploring and by making decisions. And so really it's about thinking about how the decision-making and exploration can be leveraged to aesthetics that aren't normally used. And often you find that people who don't play games don't have access to those things. Hmm. Um, How do you define aesthetics in this context? Uh, Aesthetics in games is is used really sloppily. What Nick is referring to when he says aesthetics, which I think for most of us who don't come from the game design theory world connotes something like visuals, comes from a framework called MDA, Mechanics, Dynamics, Aesthetics, which I'll link up for you to check out. So aesthetics in that world means thematically what emotions and feelings do you want to elicit out of participants as a designer? And when you're clear on what you want that end state of your experience to be, then you can build in the dynamics, which are just the rules and interactions that you embed into your game made visible to the player. It was a, it was a capstone on a, a longer narrative experience I had been working on that was a kind of, you know, ongoing... Nick's describing the context in which he essentially somewhat unintentionally discovered how to get humans acting like rats in a labyrinth. And more importantly, the power of embodied storytelling. That had, you know, active participants in the 40s and and past participants in the low hundreds. So it was impossible to tie up, right? Like in any kind of meaningful narrative way, um, unless I was making really arbitrary decisions. So I decided that a good way to end it would be to play a game. And I would use the game as a way of just sort of determining certain outcomes, and then I could narrate over those outcomes. And so the metaphor I came up with was a game of tag, because effectively the end of the narrative was the players being hunted. So I realized that like, oh, like a, like a game of tag is a good metaphor for that. If you get caught, you're in trouble. Um, and I wanted to play it in a space that would provoke certain kinds of, um, a certain sense of getting lost um, in a crowd and that you would not necessarily see the people coming for you, but they could just kind of disappear. So we did it at Grand Central Station. But doing it at Grand Central Station meant there was a constraint. Like if, if you had a whole bunch of people running in organized groups at Grand Central Station, the police would stop you because it would look organized. So I put a rule in that said you couldn't run, right, that you had to walk, and that if you ever ran and, 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 uh, and someone who was trying to tag you caught you running, you were automatically caught. Um, and, and that had this really interesting side effect because in a game of tag, you're constantly in a state of low anxiety that p- spikes when you see someone chasing you. And it triggers like the adrenaline rush you get when you're chased, right? But the, that adrenaline rush is kind of demanding that you like fight something or run or burn energy in a really intense way. And if you don't, um, which is what I kind of asked people to do, I was like, don't run, you don't use that energy 
right? Which has this side effect of making people paranoid. Um, and then they start acting in increasingly paranoid ways as the game goes on. So, so I started to see this like really bizarre and intense emotional response and behavior from people, like people who hid for three hours, people who walked back to back through the corridors of Grand Central to make sure they weren't caught. Um, and people were ecstatic about the experience and it was really a body hack, right? It was just a simple body hack, which I didn't totally know I was gonna do when I put it in place. It had a, a structural purpose, but once I saw it, it had this really interesting ramification, right? Where suddenly like, oh, I can create emotional expressions by constraints in public space and using knowledge about like physical psychology effectively to like kind of manipulate people's feelings and stuff like that. And that kind of work fits into the realm of come out and play because it's all about, you know, what you do with embodied presences in space, you know? And then I think the difference that you see in street games from other kinds of games is that like you, most games do not pay attention to the body. The body is simply the vehicle that allows the mind to interact Whereas any kind of physical play demands the body's reality. And then, but the body's reality is never just a physical reality. It's always an emotive reality. So by doing things, by positioning bodies, by constraining bodies, by asking bodies to exist and perform in certain ways, you cause emotions to stir up just from the literal, literal movements that the person does. And then you can exploit those things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think interesting street games are games that not, that's not the only kind of interesting street game, but there's a whole interesting subcategory of street games that are effectively about, you know, unconscious choreographies and the, and the, and the way that those choreographies create emotional realities for participants. Hmm. Are there any of those that we would have played as kids without knowing about this that would have sort of listed the same effect in us just to sort of put it in context? Well, any game that blindfolded you? Did that to some extent because because having your eyes covered actually changes the way your brain operates, mm -hmm. like in a fundamental way. Um, any game that, like I, I think a game like soccer is a really good example, right? Because soccer asks us to remove our dependence on a, a, a really very focused part of our body. And you, you know, you can actually do these mental mappings of like how much brain energy is spent on different parts of the body. And when you visualize that the hands get huge because it's like a real big center for us. Um, and so if you ask someone to perform in a game experience without using their hands, you're actually switching them to a very different mindset. Um, and there's a reason why soccer is, is often described as graceful. Mm. You know, like that's a word used with it. It's a strange word to use with a really intense athletic activity, but it's because you're asking people to exhibit a kind of body mastery over parts of the body that are not designed for that kind of mastery. And that changes your whole relationship mm -hmm. to a space, you know? And, I, and I, so I think like things like that, which are, which are, you know, they're not like highly, highly um, optimized aesthetic examples that go towards narrative experiences or anything, but they start pointing in directions of like, okay, what happens when I start you know, like playing with these things and sort of forcing you to, to interact differently. But then you could also think about what it means for someone to hold hands in a game, what it means for someone to um, lean on someone else or to be able to touch someone else or not be able to touch someone else. And a lot of my game work, um, I'm working on this current group of games I call the Intimacy Playlist that are all about different kinds of um, experiences of intimacy you have in different relationships in your life. And many of them involve very specific kinds of physicality because putting bodies in positions can trigger this remembrance of comfort or safety or awkwardness or embarrassment or um, sensitivity 
you know, and that, that I think a lot of experiences of intimacy are tied to our body awareness and sort of how we understand our bodies. Are we awkward? Are we nervous? Are we, um, are we comfortable? Are we unconscious? And like, how do you, how do you position people in ways that like make those things happen? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. There's, um, this guy that talks about how everything we do in public is to avoid contact Yet fear dissipates the most when we're in large groups, right? So there's something weird that happens there when you sort of construct a mass of people in the right way. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't believe that that people are in public are trying to avoid contact. I think people in public, like, recognize some of the dangers of public and act in ways to protect themselves from those dangers. But I don't. I, I think you see things like outdoor movies and outdoor concerts and um, block parties as like, like why would I go to a block party with my friends? It kind of doesn't make sense, right? I'm with my friends. My friends and I could just go to our apartment. It's like, isn't that the same experience? Well, clearly no, because we didn't. We went to the block party. So why do we, and you know, this is a phenomenon that's described in Matthew Lee multiplayer games as alone together, right? That like, I want to hang out with my friends in a large number of people. So what is the reaction that I'm having to a large number of people that makes it an appealing process. There's got to be something there that's, that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's, like a, that's a really interesting question for things like urban design to answer because like, what if there's just a human instinct to congregate? And, and what if that's not a negative experience? What if that's not an experience that I'm trying to anonymize myself in? Mm-hmm. Or maybe the anonymity is part of a larger positive experience that I want to be part of. Or maybe I just have a different understanding of my close tie networks when I'm in a large field of strangers. It's like, like, like all of these things are aesthetics that, that I think are interesting to think about. And I think patterns of human behavior, because there is no culture on earth that does not congregate in large numbers in places, it, I mean, it tells us that that's something very fundamentally human, and I think we, we should be asking that. Yeah, and it's really easy to prompt people to get out of that mode of fear, right? It takes, like, a simple invitation sometimes. Um, I was at IO, and Zach Lieberman was like, everybody get up, and we sort of played, like, a weird auditorium version of Twister, right? Okay. With all of our neighbors. <laughs> but it was, like, the most heartwarming thing, and then people took pictures, like, aerial pictures, and everybody's, like, touching the person on the right's elbow and something as simple as that creates something that feels quite unexpected when you go into the, the space right so speaking of like posture and like just little uh, cues and prompts that I think have a, a way of transforming the entire atmosphere yeah and I think it's there's two pieces to that like one piece is like you're saying like the literal postures and interactions but there's also the core relationship which is like hey we're going to play a game and then you say yes and then you enter uh, something that um, Katie Salen and Eric Zimmerman called the losery attitude where you're like part of a game system, right? Now you're thinking about, you know, like you're, 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 you're allowing yourself to enter what Huizinger talks about as like a sacred space and then you kind of like are behaving according to different rules and there's something very freeing about that. And one of the things that's freeing about sacred spaces from that, you know, Homo Ludens model is that, that, that the rules of your life don't exist the same way anymore. And one of those rules is that the person next to me who I don't know is not someone I interact with. And if I feel like the game system is safe, right, like I feel a basic sense of safety in the game system, that frees me to experiment 
in ways I wouldn't normally. And then I think that that's the, I think personally as a game designer, that's why we get this sense of freedom from play is because we take off this set of constraints that we always live with. And then we put on a new set of constraints, which affords us these other ways of interacting that we would never normally would. And particularly when we engage with other people, that's really interesting because the game becomes an excuse to engage socially with other people in ways that we would never feel comfortable doing otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that there's something really amazing about that experience. Um, and I had studied psychology. Um, you know, I got kind of obsessed with these sort of psychology um, research studies about like, um, you know, the easy one is like if you make someone run on a treadmill and you get their heart rate up and then you show them images like minutes after, like, like enough minutes after the, the treadmill running that they no longer feel like their heart's accelerated, although their heart is accelerated, they report having more aggressive responses to the photos, right? And it's because their heart rate is accelerated. And I realized like, oh, you can hack... You can hack bodies and, you know, you study things like haunted houses and, like, why do haunted houses flash strobes every so often? And it's because a strobe right will obliterate your night vision. Mm -hmm. So they flash a strobe every so often to reset your night vision. Mm -hmm. And that, like, you start realizing that, like, oh, there are these biological things I can just manipulate in an environment to make things happen. So I knew that that was possible, but I hadn't ever designed anything that made that happen. And so it was an, a, kind of a happy accident. But once, I, once that happened in the LARP, I started to use that in game design all the time because I, I thought it was a really fascinating way of, um, of, of getting people to feel things without telling them anything, without giving them any instruction. And so a lot of my street game work now, so like Kill Em and You'll Be Famous or Higher Than the Stars, are, are just are grounded in the embodiment of the player. Mm. And they're grounded a lot in postures that I ask the player to hold for game reasons. I don't explain why. And, and postures, not just individual postures, but postures in relation to other people. Um, and that, that the emotion often is, is very specifically from that. And it works the most ideal way when I don't tell them to hold the posture. I simply tell them a set of instructions about what they're trying to accomplish and what they can't do. And then they adopt the posture. Mm. I know they will, but they adopt the posture as their own decision. So then they never think for a second about what the posture is because I didn't tell them a posture. I just told them like, you know, you have to sit very close to somebody and then they just do whatever they do to do that. But I know that because of the constraints, they have to do that a certain way and that's exactly where I want them. Got it. Um, yeah, the, the theory makes me think of that study where they had a couple go on a bridge, right? Mm -hmm. And um, they felt an enormous amount of sort of like tension, which they attributed to the date and the other person. But really, it was just the thrill of being on a bridge. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, if you want a good date, go, go on a bridge, pretty much. Well, I mean, there's just this kind of basic understanding that I think you start to develop when you do this research, which is that our reasoning process behind our emotions is the is the consequence of the emotion and not the cause of the emotion. Mm -hmm. That the emotion exists and then our brain like looks for a reason for it and then forms that reason. And that's not always, it's not always the case that we just have emotions and then we come up with reasons. There can be a causality that way, but very often our causality is, I feel nervous, why do I feel nervous? Look around, find a reason, cord to the reason, build a memory around that reason where the nervousness may have come from something entirely different, mm -hmm. you know? And so a lot of, I think, this kind of, like, um, this kind of experience design works really interestingly when you do that. So, like, a good example of this is, um, you know, in Ida Benedetto's work with Wanderlust, you know, where they do these trespass theater events where they, like, you know, like, like put a... You know, I'm thinking of Night Heron, where there's like a like a like a speakeasy and a water tower on the top of a building. When you when you go on that experience, or if you did when it existed, um, you had to move through an abandoned building, and there was a point where you jumped from one abandoned building to another. 
And the jump is nothing, right? It's like two feet across and there's someone on either side to help you. Um, but the drop is real. It's like a two-story drop. So if you, if you somehow did not make it across, which is almost unimaginably not possible, then you would fall and hurt yourself. They do a lot to make sure you don't fall and hurt yourself, but the fact that you can see that you would drop is this moment of adrenaline that then you carry with you for the duration of the rest of the journey. And what, and what I think um, Ida was really intelligent about in that piece is that the distance you have to go after that jump is long enough that you're not really thinking about the jump anymore, but it's short enough that your body has not forgotten the jump. So when you come into the speakeasy, it's a much more intense experience. Not that, you know, seeing a speakeasy in a water tower wouldn't be an intense experience anyway, but like it's, it's heightened because you did that, right? And so when I, when I got married and we got married in a, in a, in a historic fort, there's a tunnel that goes into the fort and um, the only way to access the fort is by going down this long tunnel. And I mean, long tunnel, it's like 350 feet long. And we just left the tunnel largely dark. So you have to walk into the dark before you get to the lit up fort, which kind of looks like a castle. And we did that on purpose because I wanted people to have a moment of fear. Because I knew if they had a moment of fear before they got to the castle, then seeing the castle would be more intense. Mm. Oh, that's clever, clever marriage ambiance. <laughs> so at a very basic level, how does a designer think about space, both in terms of what it makes possible, but also what it subtly deters us from? A design exercise in a space kind of can go one of two ways. It's either like, hey, this is where the thing's going to be, and you don't really have control over that, or you make that decision for some other reason. And then you look at it and say, okay, if I'm going to design for this space, what are the affordances of the space? And how do I work with them as much as I can? Because every time I ask you to fight them, I'm asking you to resist an instinct you have. Um, and then the second thing is that if you have a specific experience in mind, you might look for a space that supports that experience. And then it's more like, okay, what is, what is a kind of space that has the affordances I want? And I'm, I'm leaving aside like really crude things like, I don't play like extremely physical games on concrete, right? Because it's not safe. But then there's like, like much more subtle things like, I don't wanna play a game that has people congregating without having a place for them to congregate. So like, what are the, what are the affordances of a space that lead to congregation? It's like, well, seating areas, certain kinds of openness, um, access to, to, to anything that you'd want, like a drink or food, um, you know, like, like a space that's not causing you to want to be quiet, right? So something about the acoustics need to encourage you that you can, you can be kind of loud and that's not going to matter, right? It needs to be approachable. It can't feel too stuffy or too delicate because I won't actually hang out. I'll get self-conscious, mm -hmm. right? So like, I think all of those kind of things start to like feed into your understanding. Um, and, I, and it's not like, you, like I said, like you could, you could play, you know, American football in a mall. Like you could do that, but like, like, it, the, the game is going to deform because the space affordances are, like, pushing people away from certain things. So far, we've talked about playing really analog terms that hark back to the games we used to play as kids and the possibility that spaces hold. How does technology alter spaces and make them alive by virtue of it being able to sense us? There's lots of different kinds of technology that you can use in these kind of things, and the technology that we used a lot in... Frankenstein AI would, it falls into the category of Internet of Things, right? And Internet of Things just very loosely is like objects, objects in the space 
are aware of their state and can communicate that state with one another. That's basically what we're talking about when we talk about Internet of Things. That's interesting because now I can encode state into the space. Right. And that's that's fascinating. Right. And state here, I mean, like I'm using a computer term in it. And I really mean like it it can record information and then distribute that information or change based on that information. So I can know a light on the wall can be true or false based on some fact. Right. It's like, does the player have the key and the door can know that just if I hold the key and then it can be it can be true or false. Right. And so. That's really interesting because it makes spaces more responsive. Like suddenly I can interact with spaces in these magical ways because like now the lights will turn on if I do X and they will turn off if I do Y or the sound will change in a spectrum based on what I'm doing, right? And that kind of magic is really fascinating because it opens up a whole new affordances. Like now suddenly the space can change based on what I do. The space is aware of something about me, you know? And, and for, from a game's perspective, that's great because having that kind of information around makes games potentially more complicated and that's better, right? Because there's more possibilities of choice. But it's also just good for interactive experiences generally because you get controls over certain kinds of aesthetics that you didn't have before. Mm -hmm. Like, if I want to change the lighting based on the state of the AI in Frankenstein AI, I could have a human being listen to what the AI says and then like twist the lighting to match that, but that's clunky and it involves an extra person and it probably wouldn't be smooth. But instead, if I can just have the AI tell the lights change to the state and it happens automatically, A, you get a smoother experience, but it also does feel magical, mm -hmm. right? Because nothing, you know, the, the, the idea that you can broadcast its state to other devices means that I don't see anything happen. You know, we ask a question and someone types a question in and hits enter on a keyboard and then the whole room transforms, you know? And that feels like magic in a way that other kinds of technologies like mobile technologies don't feel like magic. Like I expect my phone to do crazy things. If I hit a button on a phone and a door opened, I actually probably wouldn't be that impressed by that because I expect my phone to do that. If I, take a, if I take a stick that has an accelerometer in it and I have to move the stick up and down three times rapidly and then the door opens, that's magic. Even though there's a technology in there doing it, it's because it looks like a stick and I can't see the connection for myself. So it becomes a kind of magical experience. So I think there's a lot of potential for that. And we exploited that in Frankenstein and I largely because we wanted in, in the part, well, first of all, we wanted you to be able to record information and get it to the AI without you realizing you were doing that. So a lot of the early interactions in Frankenstein AI were about um, measuring things or rating things or, or kind of creating, summing things up and then having that information go to the AI without you having ever to talk to the AI or see the AI or even think you were submitting it. Hmm. Um, and then in the part where you actually witness the AI, the purpose of the technology is to have all of the objects in the room, like the sound, the visual design, um, the things you're hearing from the AI and a dancer's performance in the third act, um, all change instantaneously and in sync based on the reactions of the audience. And so that you would imagine them as a single object. And again, I don't know how possible that would be without technology that sort of enabled it. Right. That's awesome. Um, I think of that as a sort of form of data that we haven't tapped into yet outside of these kinds of experiences that you and others create, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what Dana Boyd sort of calls like self-segregation. Okay. Uh, this ultimate uh, promise of personalization mm -hmm. has just created this false sense of like, 
um, accommodations, that everything's going to be frictionless and specifically for you, right? And if everything is for you, then we're just a whole bunch of yous, but yeah. we're not a collective body anymore, right? And how that's an, an important facet of um, sort of society's fabric is to be able to, to interact with difference. I think there's a design pass that needs to happen though, as we realize that like the suburbification that was supposed to happen just did not happen. Right? It didn't happen, and it didn't happen because people didn't want it. And people don't work from home because they don't want to work from home. Right? Like, we're, we're seeing, like, there was this sort of attempt to, like, kind of create a more atomized world, and then we saw people react against it. So when I think about it as a futurist, I say to myself, okay, there is going to be some frictionless stuff, right? Some of that frictionless stuff will be personal, like, in that I, I step foot into whatever vehicle it is that I take to go to where I'm going, and it sort of immediately resets to my height and my musical preferences and the temperature I like and all that sort of crap, right? So that, I think, is going to be real. But then there's also the idea of traffic becoming frictionless. And, and when you think about that, that's different. That's like a frictionlessness that's not personal. That's a frictionlessness that's collective. I'm not going to get what I want out of traffic being frictionless mm -hmm. because I'm not the only car, right? So it's, like, it's going to be an aggregate frictionless. Um, and so if I ask myself, okay, so what's going to happen? Do I think people are going to atomize and go off into VR? No, because they could right now and they don't. So they're going to go into public spaces. The question is, what do people want from those public spaces? And I think this is like the really interesting push point going into the future. Because what we've started to learn from naive use of social media, and I think everything we do with social media right now is naive because it's effectively like 15 years old. Um, we find that people put themselves in bubbles and then they freak out that they're in bubbles and then they start to want to understand how they're in bubbles. Or when we leave them in bubbles too long, it becomes highly destructive, right? And we realize that for the sake of democracy, meaning living with other people, we don't want people living in bubbles. But nobody, you know, and then you start getting to bowling alone stuff, right? Because nobody, nobody wants to be in the loose tie networks. They always want to be in the strong tie networks. So I think what cities need to do, and, and you see this in a, as, a, as a rise in this sort of like minority discipline of like playful city design that's been floating around in the ether for the last five or six years is this idea of like well what is it like to build spaces that are designed for people to congregate in them and how do you build affordances into those spaces that just let people congregate right you don't have to do much you just have to like give them a space where that's possible and then they start to do it right um i think the techno what the technologies can do is make those things more possible like give people ways of being pushed towards loose ties right like we always assume that when we can detect things about people, we're going to tailor an experience that's more in line with what they like. There's absolutely no reason why the technology couldn't do the exact opposite, right? Push you to difference or push you to an assorted difference. There's no reason why technologies can't help people meet new people. We have tons of them right now in the form of dating apps, right? That are just, they're exclusively designed to have people meet other people. And why couldn't those technologies exist in social spaces? And then what happens when a park is smart enough to kind of know some of the people in it and then do things that allow people in that space to interact in new ways. Like flag for you where someone left a bicycle if you need a bicycle. Or realize that there's a certain number of people in a space and activate some kind of spectacle experience for those people. Or, I mean, just simply change the flow patterns of the crowd so that there's always enough people in the crowd that you feel safe, right? Hold the trains only because there aren't enough people at the station. Until there's enough people at the station where you're not gonna enter a train car by yourself.
right? Like these are things that are all kind of possible. I think, but you see, this is one of the interesting things I really don't know because the question, the, the central question to me is not like, what will the technology make possible? I think technology can make a lot of things possible. I think the central question is, will human beings start to realize and codify an understanding that loose tie networks are really critical to health? And so we need to have block parties and church equivalents and, um, and you know, social groups that are not just you and the three people you went to college with, right? Are, are we going to start, like, building that for ourselves because we just sort of finally realize that, like, you're not going to get a job, have someone help you with a lost loved one, meet a partner, or, you know, like, find out about new music if you just hang out with the same three people all the time? Or are we going to recognize as urban designers that... No one wants to do that, so we have to do it for them. And we have to create spaces where that's just going to simply happen accidentally. So we start thinking about food courts where people work. And we start thinking about playgrounds for kids. And we start thinking about public squares and beaches and parks. And we start thinking about, okay, what can we do that will allow people to intersect in the ways that are healthy and that are safe, but that give people the ability to reach outside of their tight little networks and start feeling like they're parts of communities, mm -hmm. you know? And then how do we resist the technologies that, that destroy that, right? You know, notably things like Airbnb, right? Like how do we strip away the technologies that actually do atomize us when we shouldn't be atomized? Um, I think that's, I, I, I don't know, I think it's a super interesting question. Mm -hmm. But I think the fact that like we start seeing these ideas of design that put, you know, I think a lot about like Union Square and the cube in Union Square, right? And the fact that so many people don't know that that cube spins. Mm -hmm. And the kind of magic that happens when people who do know the cube spins, spin it. And everybody suddenly realizes that the cube spins. Or when you, and to take a modern example that's more technological, you realize that the lights on the, um, on the, um, which one is it? The Empire State Building? I can't remember. Mm -hmm. But like, the, like the, the lights, the, there's an app you can get to change the lights. Mm -hmm. Right? And so you can stand on the street and change the lights on a public building. And, and the way that that becomes this sort of loose tie awareness because someone does it and everyone around that person says, wow, and then people look. Or that the Times, Times Square Alliance takes over Times Square just before midnight and then shows an art display on all the billboards, mm -hmm. right? And then that becomes a social experience because a lot, there's people walking around there at night. Like mm -hmm. some people come for it, but some people don't even know it's going to happen. And then suddenly it appears, mm -hmm. right? Public art has the ability to do this in ways that I think almost nothing else does. And once we have technology that enables that art to be responsive to people, especially if it becomes game-like where all of us can interact with it and then we realize it's like a beach ball we're trying to keep up in the air and that all of us have to keep it up in the air. And now suddenly, like, I'm looking at you who I've never seen before and I'm hoping that you're going to jump with me so that we both jump together and then we all jump together and we get it and we look at each other and we smile or maybe we high-five. And that's the duration of our interaction. That's what cities are. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what cities can be. And I think that it's, it's, it's this question of, like, how do we leverage our public spaces to make those things possible in the way that we want them to be, which is, like, light touch, participatory, um, and, and I think playful because, as we talked about before, the more that they're playful, the more that means they're outside of our normal experience and the more excuse we have to do the unusual weird things that make us happy and make us bond. I love that idea of designing against the human grain. Like what I really want from Google is for it to secretly serve me up the preferences of someone from an adjacent group just to push me out of my comfort zone. 
Okay, so with everything that we've talked about, paint a picture for us of what a playful New York City would look like. On the subway, you know, like, could the subway take advantage of Showtime-like dynamics to create experiences for people that are on the train that are like Showtime-like experience? So if you're in your Kindle or you're, like, you know, playing, you know, um, I don't know, subway surfers and you don't want to, like, get involved, you don't. But if you just want to sit and look at it, you could. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, something happens that's sort of interesting. Like, you know, can you flip book in the subway tunnels with the images on the walls? Could the lights change at certain points? In relation to certain things, could there be some kind of animation running in the ads on the subway? Like, just something that, like, causes a bunch of people to look around together and especially, like, look around... So they just happen to see the other people in the space and they happen to make eye contact for a second, mm-hmm. right? And that, maybe that's all you need. It's just that moment. Because, you know, there's the, you talk about these negative things that happen, like when, when someone really crazy gets on the subway and starts ranting and then the person leaves and there's a moment where everybody on the subway just, like, looks at each other because they want verification that, like, yeah, that was crazy, right? <laughs> and, like, could you do things that just tap into that mm. so we feel like we're on the train together, which is what we are, mm-hmm. right? And that, that not in a way that makes me feel creeped out or makes me feel unsafe, but a way that just makes me recognize it and then it becomes my ball to play with however mm-hmm. I want. Mm-hmm. I think that stuff is really powerful. Yeah. I think public space in general, what, what Come Out and Play is essentially about in a lot of ways um, is this idea that like urban spaces are public spaces and public spaces are for the public. And a lot of what we want to express in Come Out and Play and the reason why we don't run Come Out and Play in traditional spaces is because we want to show people in some sense you can be playful in these spaces. And the reason why is, is twofold. One is it, it gives you, play gives you the affordances to meet other people in interesting ways. And the second thing is play gives you the affordance to imagine what the space could be and how the space could work. And so suddenly you're asked to think differently about the spaces you occupy, which leads you hopefully out of the unconscious biases you have and the natural affordances you have based on the space and, its, and the social structures that exist around the space. And then suddenly you realize that streets are as much for skateboarding as they are for walking, right? And that... that you know, that the genius of skateboarding, right? The genius of what skateboarding became was the realization that I can map an entirely different paradigm onto every place I commute and that becomes a wholly different meaningful space. Mm -hmm. So I can half pipe, I mean, it's literally something I saw a couple days ago. I can half pipe up a concrete barricade because it's the right shape, Mm -hmm. right? And I want more people to have that vision of the world because then we'll challenge like what, any power structures want us to think spaces are. I want to thank Nick for the wide-ranging, fascinating conversation. In addition to being an all-around interesting guy, you can check out Playmatics, a game design company Nick founded, Come Out and Play, which happens every summer in New York, and Frankenstein AI, a monster made by many, a multi-year design research project that he collaborated on with the Columbia Digital Storytelling Lab. And if you enjoyed this episode about designing wild bodies in space and want to hear more perspectives on this same theme, I'd encourage you to listen to my conversation with Andrea Miller, the artistic director and founder of Galim Dance, as well as our upcoming episodes with a placemaker and an urban geographer. As always, a special thanks to Brad Clymer for the theme song and to Lawrence Williams for producing this episode. I'm Romy Neme, and you've been listening to The Third Person. See you back here soon.